The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy, leading the transition toward a 100% renewable future. In 2018, Vertzilla established the Path to 100 community to bring together thought leaders and industry experts with a goal, discover solutions, raise awareness, and start a dialogue on how to achieve a 100% decarbonized electricity system. Find out more at pathto100.org and become part of the discussion. We're also brought to you by Honeywell, a leading supplier of IoT solutions to mission-critical industries around the world. Honeywell's smart energy helps utilities transform their grid operations through advanced solutions and targeted services from edge to cloud. Their electricity, gas, and water solutions go beyond tomorrow's horizon, putting valuable, actionable data in the hands of utilities to better serve their customers. Learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week has 2020, which seemed irredeemable, just done a 180. We'll be back in the Paris Agreement, Biden's got a zero emissions plan, East Asia's making big moves, and there might even be a vaccine for COVID-19. First up on the show, Joe Biden has a plan for getting people back to work after the pandemic recession, and it doubles as a plan to get the United States to net zero carbon by 2050. We'll talk about what some of his policy priorities should be to get us there. Then, while you might have been distracted by the upheaval of COVID and the U.S. election, Japan, the world's third largest economy, plus South Korea, set net zero paths as well. We'll talk about what that means going into next year's climate negotiations and what that means for how a Biden administration will run the State Department. Jigger Shah is in Bethesda, Maryland. Jigger, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just trying to figure out whether we still live in a democracy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I went from pretty significant peak this weekend down to my usual trough this week. It's It's been a wild ride. Um, <laughs> we'll try to squeeze as much positivity out of this conversation as possible. <laughs> Catherine Hamilton is our other co-host. She's co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's in Arlington, Virginia. How are you? I'm doing great. I feel like I have a new lease on life since the uh, Fairfax Innova Children's Hospital saved my kid. We checked in on September 30th um, and we were just released on Sunday. And I just I don't have enough kind things to say about all the nurses and doctors who just they put aside any differences they might have. There were no political conversations in the hospital. It was all about how are we going to get your kid better? And one of the doctors, the infectious disease doctor we worked with, uh, is actually conducting the children's study on COVID. And she is sure there will be a vaccine. So I think we have a lot to look forward to. Hmm. Well, we we're polling for you. We're so happy for you. And I know our listeners are super happy for you as well. So really good news. Well, what a difference a week makes. Uh, Joe Biden is going to be the next president. Uh, he's already named his environmental transition team. He discussed climate change with four European heads of state this Tuesday. And he's got a build back better one pager that looks a lot like the recovery plans in Europe that we've been talking so wistfully about for months because, well, they can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, They address the dismal job situation by tackling decarbonization. And we also saw that a bunch of former Obama officials put together a 300-page report, a blueprint on what the Biden team could do when they get into office to address climate change. So 
We're going to look at some specific things that a Biden administration can do in each identified category in that Build Back Better plan to get to net zero emissions. We won't get through every category, but we want to just have a kind of a wish list. What are the things that uh, Biden and his team should be doing right now? And how close to zero by 2050 can this country get if the Senate remains GOP-led? We gamed that out a little bit in a previous episode, but it's the question that everybody's asking. It certainly depends on upcoming runoff elections in Georgia and what the balance of power looks like. But uh, I think that's that that will really determine what policy priorities we get going forward and where they're actually made. So let's put some policy meat on the bones and examine the trade-offs that are coming. Um, so Biden has this document, Build Back Better. It specifically references net zero emissions by 2050. Catherine, is there something that jumped out at you from that plan? Like, what do you think the single thing they can do to reduce emissions the fastest will be? So I think the single thing is moving to an electric vehicle future and using the Clean Air Act in every possible way with all of the authority that they have as an executive branch. So I'm for... Uh, decarbonizing the transportation sector because it is the greatest greenhouse gas emitter now. It's 28% cafe standards, certainly putting much more pressure on the big three and other car companies to come together. There's a plan that Minority Leader Schumer put together called Clean Cars for America that would put in place cash for clunkers, state and local funding for charging and manufacturing incentives. Now, a lot of those have to be done by Congress, but I think Biden can do himself, both with EPA regulation, um, with transportation policy, but also with the Federal Energy Management Program and all of the energy that the federal government uses, whether it's with fleets or buildings or operations. And I think that he can he can really do a lot on especially the transportation side. It is 28% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Yeah, so I was going to ask that. Why transportation? We know that transportation emissions for the first time last year surpassed emissions from the power sector. So are you just looking at those raw numbers and saying, hey, we got to figure out transportation first and here's how we do it? Is that the calculus you're making? Yeah. And you said, what's the biggest impact? So since yeah. that's the biggest sector, that was the biggest impact. And I think right. we have a lot of tools that we could ramp up in the other sectors. So the power sector is pretty much on track. I mean, coal plants are shutting down because they're uneconomic um, and because of state policy. So I think other sectors, um, we have tools, certainly the building sector, we have a lot of tools on appliance standards, for example, that there is already authority for the executive branch to move forward on those. It's written in law. So there are a lot of sectors that he can move forward on from an executive level. Um, but there are also some, some sectors like industry that I think people can come together with in Congress that I think, you know, when you say what's the greatest impact he could have, that was the sector I chose. Got it. And Jigger, what about you? Greatest impact policy, you think, from day one? Um, probably procurement, right? Corporate PPAs. I mean, the federal government within existing authority could sign corporate PPAs for probably 50,000 megawatts of renewable energy. Um, and they could literally remake the entire electricity grid through those PPAs. I don't know that they have the stomach for it. But it is the I think it is the greatest impact they could do to 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 change the trajectory of the country. I don't know if either of you know the answer to this question, but the government has buying massive amounts of renewable energy for years since, I don't know, 2012. So did that slow down under the Trump administration? And how could it ramp back up? 
Well, it's not massive, right? I mean, it's it, they were buying uh, racks, right? It's in the same way that the city of D.C. says we're 100% renewable or state of Pennsylvania says we're 100% renewable, right? So they're buying racks from existing operating facilities, right? That doesn't count in my book. Like what a corporate PPA really does is um, provide additionality, right? They're saying we are going to buy this power. And because we're providing this power with our credit rating, then this project can move forward and new renewable energy projects will be built as a result, right? So those are... So what happened since 2012 in that regime was like there was, you know, a push for a thousand megawatts of renewable energy to be built at military bases. There was some of that work that was done under the Obama administration, but those are small numbers compared to what they could do through a real corporate PPA. Yeah, and I worked uh, for the Federal Energy Management Program during the Clinton administration, and that was really about getting all the federal facilities to be more energy efficient and to purchase renewables and to try to get some of those authorities put into place like energy savings performance contracts, which have been there for a long time. I mean, you can definitely amp those up. I think the difference here is in a couple of ways. One is, yes, he can use executive order to do a lot of things to start re-regulating, to start taking out some of the provisions that President Trump has put into place to make sure that we go back and start re-regulating under the Clean Air Act, which he has the authority to do, to re-put into place, you know, fuel efficiency standards, appliance efficiency standards. He can also require disclosure in financial regulation. So he he can require corporate disclosure of CO2 emissions. Obviously, he can get back into Paris and show some international leadership. But one of the most important things I think he can do is He's taken a systems approach. So he said everything is linked from COVID relief to economic relief to um, racial equity to climate. All of those are part of a system. And by using the systems approach and making all of the tools of the federal government pointed in the same direction. So every single agency is going to have a mandate. You have to deal with all of these things. And climate is on the list. You have to use whatever is in within your mission to make sure that you address it. I'm sure that this will be based on science, bringing the scientists back into the room and having their voices heard, and also making sure that he really reflects a social cost of carbon that is accurate. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, Catherine. And I do think that there was some reporting that there was actually going to be a climate-specific person in every agency so that all infrastructure that was built um, over the next four years would have a climate lens on it. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, as we've said before, personnel is policy. And I think having those people in there and even a climate council, I think, would be, you know, quite consequential. So I put out the call right before we started and asked people for their priorities. And I'd love to get your opinions on some of these ideas that people have suggested and and how effective they would be from day one. So I I asked our listeners, if you could pick one policy from day one from this broad list that uh, Biden has has laid out, which is, again, infrastructure, auto industry, transit, power sector, buildings, housing, agriculture and environmental justice, what would it be? And and here are some of the ideas. Tim Latimer says, get the authorized tens of billions of dollars currently sitting on the sidelines in the DOE loan program office back to work. Is that a day one thing that could provide a significant ramp up in low carbon technologies? No, 
I mean, but that's because DOE Why? doesn't work that way. The way DOE works is you got to pay a lobbyist $100,000 a month. If you pay less than that, you probably won't get anybody to return your phone calls. And then you need a minimum of a $100 million project, right? So if you have a 5 or $10 million project, there's no chance that you get that money, right? And so it's just fundamentally broken. So if they actually want to do what Tim's suggesting, which is a great idea, they would probably need to reform the office for two years and get probably some congressional authority to reform the office. Um, because, I mean, there's just tons of scar tissue there. Remember, one of the biggest problems with the DOE Loan Guarantee Program is not DOE. One of the biggest problems with the DOE Loan Guarantee Program is OMB. The Office of Management and Budget has to approve every one of those loans. And they sat on some of those loans for nine months, not approving them because they thought they were too risky. Yeah. And that program does not focus on deployment of technology at scale. It's really about innovation. And that's great. There's a place for innovation. I mean, there are a lot of programs at at DOE that point to that, like ARPA-E certainly does, that address different pieces and different portions of the timeline. But you need something like you know, I think like a national climate bank or something outside of the government that can just like get money out the door. You need something that is much more efficient than the loan program office. Uh, Lydia Sakarik says she has two here. One is methane regulations. So retighten methane regulations. How effective, uh, how quickly could you do that on day one? Where does that stack up on the priority list? Yeah, I'm all in on that one. I think that's a great idea. I think it's something that the oil companies want. Remember, Halliburton was pushing back about the Trump administration trying to roll back methane regulation. So I think they could do that in part in an executive order and just start regulating again and bring industry to the table because it behooves industry to be regulated in this area. Yeah, I agree. What about, she also says, uh, reinstating California's clean car waiver. And that was obviously under attack from the Obama, from the Trump administration. Is that something that you could do very quickly? And, and if not, uh, do you just create a national standard or something for emissions that are tighter? Do you create a clean car standard that mirrors California? Like, what, what do you do in the auto industry that addresses the Trump administration's attack on California's agenda setting policy? Well, you don't fight their waiver anymore, so they still have their waiver. Yeah, there you uh, go. So, you so drop they can it. continue, right? right. Uh, so that's good. I mean, a lot of this is about not continuing to fight for what the Trump administration was fighting for. So you just like back away from all of those lawsuits and all of the bad stuff that they were trying to do. And I think that because there's so many states that are moving in the same direction as California, that's going to drive the market and make it a lot easier to do something federally. Yeah, I think the other thing that we should point out is that I think the Obama administration really screwed up on this, right, where they tried to have one unified standard for both California and the rest of the country. And I think what they should do in this case under the Biden administration is keep them separate, right? The the California standard wants to make in, make it such that internal combustion engines are illegal to sell in the state of California by 2035. There are nine other states or so that will copy that if California puts that out there um, and finalizes the rule. I don't think that that's possible for the Biden administration to make nationwide politically. So the nationwide CAFE standard should be X and the California waiver should be Y. And I don't think they should try to unify it like they did under Obama. Another idea that's been floating around, this one was um, mentioned by Paul Hines. Our friend Justin Gway has talked a lot about this. A cash for clunkers for coal plants. So how do you give money to communities 
or to coal plant owners and shut down their coal plants? And what do you replace it with? How quickly could something like that happen? Could it happen? And where is it on the priority list from you know day one? So it looks more like a bad bank. And so the way you would do that, in my opinion, is through the federally chartered uh, utility companies, right? So you would have TVA, WAPA, you know, like, uh, you know, Bonneville buy all the coal plants and frankly, all the nuclear plants, because I don't think that the nuclear football makes a lot of sense anymore, right? When you think about like all of the weirdness going on with Governor Pritzker in Illinois, where he's kind of sort of not supporting the nuclear plants. And then the same weirdness in Ohio, where HB6 is landing some people in jail. I I just don't think it's likely that the nuclear power fleet is going to be allowed to run to its end of life, right? Which is what we need to be able to reduce emissions by the most amount, right? And so you could imagine... TVA and all these folks buying up all of these power plants. And then the coal plants, they would shut down in an orderly fashion as soon as they could. And the nuclear plants, they would run until the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said it was no longer, you know, safe to run them. And I I think that's a great idea. But I also think you're going to really have to engage the communities that are impacted by that. And that's the great thing about what the campaign did was that they really engaged people on the ground. I mean, mom's clean air force has done a ton. There's a lot of already good work that's happening in local communities that have been impacted by the coal industry. And so if you can bring those people to the table and help them sort of map out if we shut this down, what's our fate going to be? And what do we want that to look like? And what resources do we need? But I think that is something that the Biden administration will be able to do naturally if they bring the right people into the room, because those are the people who got him elected. All right. We have dozens of ideas here. I'm just going to finish off with one more. I'm going to see how Jigger reacts to this one. This comes from <laughs> this comes from uh, Michael Weber. And remember, he's specifically saying, I'm saying from day one, what's the most effective policy? And he says triple R&D. I think we all agree R&D is important. But um, Jigger, what is your opinion on sort of where R&D stands in the priority list and what it will do to the decarbonization efforts outlined by the Biden administration. Yeah, look, I I agree that we should triple R&D on day one. I don't see how anyone could rationally say it's the number one policy that the Biden administration could do to stave off climate change. But, you know, like, fine, right? Ponies and rainbows. But it's something that actually has really strong bipartisan support. So there are things that you can get done that are in his plan that I think are pretty interesting. And that's one of them, because that's traditionally... Uh, gotten a lot of support from both Republicans and Democrats. I think there are other things you can do, like planting trees, using agriculture means and natural solutions to climate. There are a bunch of things that are in his plan that I don't think are too far of a reach to to get a lot of bipartisan support. Totally. So let's turn our attention to the transition now. We have seen transition teams announced for EPA, for DOE, for the Interior Department, and plenty of other agencies. Um, Let's go to the Department of Energy and talk about the three names that are reportedly being considered to run the DOE. So the three names are Jay Inslee, the Washington governor who ran for president on a climate agenda. Uh, His climate plan was adopted by all the other candidates after he left the race. There's Ernest Moniz, the nuclear physicist who served in the Obama administration. He's a nuclear expert. He also helped with the... Um, nuclear disarmament talks with Iran. So he's both a, kind of an energy markets expert, but also a nuclear 
expert. And he's, you know, he focuses a lot on nuclear security. And then there's Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, who is a professor at Georgia Tech, and she was a deputy secretary of energy under the Obama administration. She is also someone who has deep nuclear expertise. So I don't know if we want to get into the horse race necessarily, but like, what do these three top picks tell us about priority setting within the Biden administration? Uh, Catherine, what do you think? Um, Ernie Moniz and Elizabeth Sherwood Randall were both in the Department of Energy as leadership before. I would be surprised if Moniz wants it again. That'd be like the same job he already had. But the advantage of somebody who's already been there is that they know how the agency runs. They know how everything works in it and understand what all the programs are. But it also means that they are, um, especially in the case of Moniz, you know, they're anchored in a time frame that was during the Obama administration. Um, So they... I'm not sure what their kind of prospective, uh, you know, leapfrogging would look like. I do think Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, you know, she's like a national security expert and DOE is a nuclear agency, really. Um, So that would be very helpful to have someone who understood that. Of course, Jay Inslee is the guy who has all the great climate ideas. So he would really take the agency to a different place. I think he would make sure that every single office there was pointed toward climate solutions. I think he would know how to do that because he was, you know, in Congress long enough and has been a you know public servant long enough to understand how to do that. I don't know if he would take it because of the whole issue of it being such a big nuclear agency, but we'll see. Jigger, I'm dying to hear your view. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that the real horse race is for the Climate Council. And I think John Podesta is pushing really hard to get to be the chair of that. And so I think that, you know, Jay Inslee's in the running for that as well. And so, you know, to me, I think this would be sort of his Jay Inslee's second choice. Um, I think if he got this position, he would be the only one of the three that actually would make this deployment forward, right? So Moniz, um, but remember, Jay Inslee has the biggest nuclear pollution site in the country in his state, right, in Hanford. So it's not like he hasn't worked with the nuclear cleanup side of DOE for for ages, uh, first as a congressman and then now as a governor. And so, but I think when you think about um, even the century, was it, was that what it was called? Century 21, climate 21. Even when you look at the climate 21 recommendations from the former Obama officials, it's the most milquetoast sort of recommendations I've read in a very long time, right? And it, when you read the energy recommendations that they put forward, it's basically Moniz's second term. And so things like, for instance, the Sunshot program, where we actually said, hey, we should reduce soft costs for solar and figure those things out. Like that needs to be replicated across all of the different areas like industrial efficiency, alternative fuels for buses and vehicles, right? There are a lot of governors who've made bold promises who don't really have all the expertise within their administration to implement all of those promises. And they need DOE technical support and other support mechanisms, with which I think Inslee will have a better feeling for than um, from the other two candidates. Yeah. So I think we need like two different kinds of people to be brought in. One is one type are people who understand how government works and how to put back together 
all the dishes that Trump broke, right? So you need people who understand where all the bodies are buried. But the other thing you need is you really need fresh ideas. We need new, an injection of new energy around climate. We need people of color. We need women. We need people who have been in communities working on these issues forever. You need a combination of both of those or else you're going to have people who are just trying to put things back together and doing everything incrementally instead of trying to do both. And I actually think we can we can walk and chew gum. We can do both. We can put things back together and leapfrog and have better ideas and a new energy in government. Well, and Moniz could just be a, a special advisor to repair the Iran nuclear deal. He doesn't actually have to be Secretary of Energy. And we definitely need him for that. I've been really interested to see how people have been reacting to these potential picks online. And within the progressive climate community, a lot of people are very critical of Ernest Moniz because... Um, you know, he's worked with the natural gas industry. He's obviously a nuclear expert. And I think you have a lot of purists who say, you know, anyone who has taken money from the fossil fuel industry could never come in and lead DOE. Um, look, Moniz is the kind of pick that you bring in if you want to prioritize rebuilding the agency and you want to prioritize securing the nuclear piece of DOE, which is obviously dominant within the agency. So that to me is a signal that if Moniz comes in or if Elizabeth Sherwood Randall comes in, that uh, putting the pieces back together and securing our nuclear fleet is going to be a top priority, kind of figuring out what damage has been done that we don't even know has been done. If you bring in someone like Inslee, then very clearly they're bringing the energy transition to the top of the list. And I still think that you can bring in the nuclear experts and people who can help, who have worked within the agency, understand what has been broken and how to put it back together. So that's how I feel like we should read these choices. Um, very clearly, someone like Inslee is going to make climate a top priority throughout the agency. And of course, the climate pieces will rise to the top under any of these other picks, but it's just going to be a different set of priorities in you know, the first few months of the administration. Yeah, but I, I, I take issue with that a little bit, Stephen, because I mean, I've interacted with Moniz a lot. Most recently, I would say just a few months ago. He still has the same belief set he had when he first came into office as Secretary of Energy, which is that today's solutions are not good enough to deploy at scale. That is his fundamental point of view. And so I just think the notion that like, we're going to give him a pass because he wrote a couple of nice papers or whatever. I mean, he has fought solar and wind's place in the electricity grid as a mainstay the entire time he's been in office since 2013. In fact, it's not just me. Everyone who basically has been a CEO of a major renewable energy company has heard Moniz directly say negative things about basing an electricity grid on large amounts of solar and wind, right? So I just think that we should be very careful about sort of giving him a free pass just because we want to be nice. Like he's has in his record, like saying this stuff. And I'm not giving him a free pass. I think he just has a very different set of skills to run the agency. And that's basically what I'm saying. Now, if you want someone who was going to make climate a top priority, someone like Jay Inslee isn't just thinking about how to build a solar and wind grid. This guy created a plan and has been talking about a plan for 13 years totally. about how to decarbonize every element of the economy and the energy system. So you're looking at someone who is not just going to say, OK, let's continue what the Obama administration has done. Let's you know, throw out some loan guarantees for some big renewable energy projects. Like He will find a way to implement 
ambitious programs that are cross-sectional with a lot of other what a lot of other agencies are doing as well. Yeah, um, I just the reason I bring it up is because I I don't believe in cancel culture, right? Whether it's Moniz or Jason Bordoff or other people who've been in the news, like the fact that people have been funded by oil and gas, et cetera, is not a problem for me. Like I think oil and gas is fine. And I think that the fact that they got funding from those places is fine. The question is, what do they believe in the future? What do they actually believe? Do they actually fully believe what Biden himself has put on his website, right? And that is where I'm saying that like, Nothing that Moniz has said, even in the last few months, makes me believe that he actually believes it, right? He's very convinced that a go-slow approach is the right way to do things, right? And I just think it's important that, like, if, you know, a lot of these other folks um, actually say, yeah, I've turned the corner, right? I certainly, I used to believe this, but now I believe this other new thing. I'm happy to give everyone a chance. But they actually have to say that we are in a different place today, that our technologies are remarkably cost-effective, that we are really behind at implementing at scale, right? And if they don't say that, then they're not really bought into what Biden's been selling. Yeah, I mean, Moniz was on the board of Southern Company. And uh, so there are, a lot, there are a lot of ties there. Yeah. And that's the reaction that you're seeing online from folks who are watching this transition. They're saying, we need someone new. And very clearly, the person who stepped up during this political cycle was... Inslee. So it'll be really interesting to see what play he gets within the Biden team. Or if we get somebody or if we get somebody who's a total surprise. I, I would love yeah, to right. see I would love to see some real surprises and dark horses that aren't the usual suspects become leaders in our in the new administration. I say Catherine Hamilton for Energy Secretary, Jigger Shaw for Deputy Energy Secretary. I would I would support uh, Catherine in any <laughs> way she asks. I don't know, y'all. That I I don't think you could pay. I don't think you could pay me enough for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I do think that I do think the more posi- important position for all of us is going to be Podesta if he if he can get the climate council position. I mean, it is very clear that he is the driving force behind Obama's shift in the second term. Yeah, um, and I do think that he has the gravitas and the contacts to actually make things happen at scale. Um, which I think we'll talk about later in this episode around the different countries' net zero commitments. Like, I just think that the U.S. is an essential player in this international um, effort, and Podesta is one of the few people who can play in all of these arenas. Yeah, I, I know we're talking about a lot of white men here for positions of power. I will say, to wrap this up, I, I saw, I work, I didn't work directly with Podesta at the Center for American Progress, but I was in numerous meetings with him uh, as we discussed cli- the climate agenda for the energy team at the Center for American Progress. This was when he was leading the organization. He was fantastic. I mean, he was clearly, you know, you bring a lot of leaders in and they just sort of get their talking points and they ask questions during meetings. This guy clearly understands the issues. And he, you're exactly right. During Obama's second term, he was instrumental in pushing the president further in that. So what about some other agencies that we should be eyeing? Catherine? Yeah, every agency. <laughs> really, every <laughs> single agency of the federal government has those four mandates that I listed before that Joe Biden put forward as a systems approach to helping America build back better. So I think Department of Interior is going to be huge uh, because certainly offshore wind, 
onshore renewables development on federal lands, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management that conducts auctions and issues permits for offshore wind is going to be crucial. Uh, They've been moving very slowly. They don't really have enough funding to do what they have to do. And I think that has to be ramped up significantly. And we can get a lot of these projects done, these offshore wind projects. And then also Department of Interior with the Bureau of Land Management will need to focus on federal lands. And what can we do on federal lands to stop extraction? Um, and continue to build renewable energy projects. So who fits that bill? Um, I know Deb Holland, who is a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe um, and who's a representative from New Mexico. What would someone like her bring to the preservation of lands um, for you know a climate agenda within the Interior Department? Talk about some of her yeah. role and some of the other people who are on the docket. Yeah, no, I think she'd be fantastic. I think part of the challenge here has been trying to figure out how we bring sort of wealth creation to some of these, you know, uh, other constituents uh, within the country, right? I mean, for a long time, I think people have left the regulation around how to work with tribes um, opaque, right? And then that's led to, um, you know, not a lot of renewable energy, for instance, being developed uh, on tribal land, even though there's a ton of free money from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, as well as like, um, you know, uh, interior, etc. I also think there's a lot of coordination work to be done with the Department of Transportation on right of ways for transmission. So um, while transmission lines are cheaper to build overhead, I think there's a lot of consensus now building in the clean energy industry that the fastest way to get it done is to use existing right of way from highways and rail infrastructure um, and bury the transmission underground. It'll cost about three times more, but that'll only increase electricity rates by two and a half percent or so, um, which is a small price to pay to be able to unlock hundreds of gigawatts of uh, renewable energy. Yeah, I totally agree. There are other agencies like Department of Agriculture uh, with Rural Utility Service, the Forest Service, All of these agencies can be pointed toward climate solutions, Department of Labor, with all of the impact on our workforce, that will need to be in consultation. And then the big kahuna, of course, is Department of Defense, because of all the national security issues that climate, the climate crisis brings to bear. Um, And then we can certainly also talk about State Department, because that's going to have a lot to do with our global leadership. Funny enough, the Climate 21 paper that was written forgot about the Department of Defense. They had no suggestions for the Department of Defense, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, from my perspective on the Department of Defense, I think they should be doing the same thing for for ARPA-E that they do for DARPA, right? Like, my sense is, is that the N- Nuclear Regulatory Commission actually has a streamlined one-year process to put uh, small modular reactors on military bases within only a year instead of five years. So you could imagine putting these small modular reactors on military bases is a huge uh, benefit. I mean, also, the military has been talking about microgrids for a long time. But the other piece of it is the electrification of, of ships, right? I mean, the nuclear submarines, the nuclear fleet makes the military one of the folks who's best in class at understanding how to reduce fuel consumption on uh, ships, which has been mandated by the International Maritime Organization and others anyway. So it, it, it seems odd to me that the military wouldn't play this crucial role around technology commercialization um, as they align technologies with their mission for national security. Final question on this. So the Trump administration was, I think, historically unique in its willingness to break 
the will of agencies and to cut down any kind of environmental regulation possible. What we're talking about here are actions that can influence agencies going forward and making climate an important piece of how leadership makes decisions and, and how that gets filtered down through agencies. That's what the Obama administration did. And the Trump administration was able to cut down at least a lot of high profile things that the Obama administration had built back up through executive order. So I guess if we're, we're considering this 300 page report that the former Obama administration officials are sending to the Biden transition team and saying, here's how you kind of make climate every piece of how the government operates. Have those efforts just stayed dormant under a Trump administration or have they been th so thoroughly cut down that we're rebuilding from scratch? And I ask that because let's say we make all this progress that we're talking about. Who's to say that another president can't come in and just dismantle this once again. So I guess I want to understand the extent of the damage and how much are we rebuilding through some of these ideas we're talking about and how, and how much of it is just taking it out of dormancy. The stuff that I'm pushing was never done seriously by the Obama administration in the first place. So it's not taking it out of dormancy, right? Like when you think about, like we created contracts by which the federal government can sign 20-year contracts for renewable energy in 2007. The Obama administration never signed a single one of them, right? So they actually just have to get it done. It's a two and a half to three year process to get through all of the regulatory hurdles, but they just have to get it done. The same thing's true for buying electric vehicles, right? The Obama administration mandated that the GSA buy electric vehicles. They didn't buy a single one. So now they actually just have to get to work and implement what you know the procurement process can do. The Obama administration talked about implementing a social cost of carbon into the GSA schedule, but never implemented it. So they just have to actually get to work and implement it, implement it right? The Obama administration identified $150 billion of deferred maintenance on federal facilities, which Hannon Armstrong and others have said could be solved with super ESPC financing. That means that contracts officers have to actually put out RFPs. To me, this is not about things in dormancy that has to be brought back up. It's about actually focusing on things that are hard. I don't need to quote Kennedy here, right? Like we, these things are hard and they have been hard for a long time, which is why nobody's ever done them. But it's not because they can't be done. It's because we just haven't had a laser focus on taking $500 billion of annual procurement that the federal government does every year and actually moving it from high carbon to low carbon. But I will push back a little bit on this, Jigger, because a lot of those technologies today are far cheaper than they were. Thanks in large part to the government's investment in R&D and making sure that we pilot and deploy those. So I think that in the same way that the Clean Power Plan under Obama directionally pushed utilities in their long range planning to start thinking about, well, we're going to have to eventually shut down our coal plants and move toward a cleaner future. In that same way, we can do that now with really cost effective technology. So it makes a ton more sense. So this is like if Walmart decided we're only going to buy one kind of toilet paper for our for our stores, all of our superstores all over the world, that would change the market for toilet paper. If, in the same way, as you mentioned before, procurement, if the, if the entire US government is focused in one direction on everything that we do is gonna be focused directionally on reducing emissions, 
corporates, all the business community, everybody is going to, utilities are going to be pushed in that direction. So I think it has a huge impact that I don't think died, but I think we're in a much better position to implement. The Fox News clip of what you're saying, Joe Biden is going to only buy one type of toilet paper, one square of toilet paper for everybody. <laughs> That's Joe Biden's world. <laughs> but I do, I, the other thing I would say is that once you make this investment in these massive changes, then it's actually really hard to go back. It's not easy to change government procurement that way, right? And so you have a whole series of vendors, right, who now have switched their supply chains and, and supply lines. And as Catherine's suggesting, there's a lot of cities and universities and states that have signed these pledges who have, you know, in my opinion, no idea how to implement them. If the federal government said, here's how to implement it, they'd be happy to tell their procurement people, hey, just buy whatever the federal government's buying. For the first time, I'm so energized by this. You know, it's like we're disagreeing uh, about some s really important things that are actually going to be implemented or possibly being implemented. Like, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. My God, yep. here we are. We're talking about positive changes and very smart people are going to be working on these issues. Yes. And that's why the Georgia Senate races are so important, y'all. Then we can get more done. So you mentioned the State Department, Catherine. I think that dovetails nicely with the second half of our conversation. So let's get there. But first, I want to talk about our sponsors. We're brought to you by Vertzilla. The Path to 100% is a group of thought leaders and industry experts working together to identify the fastest, most cost-effective, reliable ways to decarbonize electricity, not just city by city, but across entire states and nations. This is about more than just raising awareness. It's also about solutions and realistic approaches to building a 100% renewable energy future. That means addressing economic, scientific, and political challenges that vary around the world. So the path to 100% from Vertzilla is not a one-size-fits-all blueprint. It aims to provide, instead, information that helps each nation, state, and community to customize its own path to 100%. Maybe the Biden transition team can read that path to 100%. 100% plan and come up with some more ideas. Learn more about the pathway and download it. It's the pathway to 100%. Visit pathto100.org. We're also brought to you by Honeywell. The next generation of smart electric grid technology is here. Honeywell has partnered with leading cellular carriers to integrate 5G and LTE network technologies into its connected energy solutions for smarter homes, buildings, cities, and mission-critical facilities. Honeywell is using cellular IoT infrastructure to help utilities develop high-speed, reliable, and secure networks. Its scalable and customizable platform makes it easy for utilities to build grid intelligence, improve customer experience, and find new opportunities for efficiency and automation. Honeywell Smart Energy is delivering the future of utility connectivity. Learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. 2020 is turning into the year of net zero. Japan and South Korea have now promised to zero out carbon emissions by 2050. That preserves the possibility of keeping warming at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius. This fall, China also issued its first ever net zero date. This one is by 2060. That means most of East Asia has now committed to eliminating all new carbon emissions by a certain date. President Moon Jae-in of South Korea actually ran and won on a platform of a Green New Deal for Korea. He's talking about a just transition away from dirty energy. And Japan says it will rethink its reliance on coal. That comes just months after reporting showing the country was uh, making a major push back into coal. 
These are big stories on their own, bigger in the context of America's re-engagement with the world as we head toward climate negotiations in 2021. So before we get into each of them, I think we, as Americans after the election, want to be a bit American-centric here. How do these targets take on additional significance under the incoming Biden administration? Catherine? Yeah, so for Biden to get back in, and we talked a little bit about this on our last episode, he has to say he wants to get back in, and then he has to prove that he's able to meet the targets and ramp up, because at COP26, which will be in Glasgow next November, all countries have to show that they're ramping up their goals for 2030. And I think that's what's pushing all these other countries to try to get in line with the EU and others that have already said we're going to get to net zero by 2050. So it's putting a lot of pressure. But the great news is that Biden is all in on this and he wants to and is even now as he's talking to state leaders, um, putting pressure on their climate goals. And you know, that is going to be that is going to change our relationship with countries like Brazil and Indonesia and Mexico and Australia um, as Biden gets back the U.S. back into all of those negotiations. I think we are in a better position than a lot of those countries, but he's going to have a lot of work to do. This may be a oversimplistic or perhaps naive take on this, but one of the responses to China's net zero target was that China's trying to be a counterweight to the U.S., right? Like they see the lack of U.S. leadership as an opening for them. And the more ambitious they are, the more power it gives them on the geopolitical stage. So does the U.S. re-engaging, um, what is the balance and in, in impact? Does it make these countries like more excited and more willing to adopt these targets? Or does it change their thinking behind how to craft these targets? Well, it is true that you know, that the lack of American leadership is the reason why Russia came out with a plan to reduce its emissions, right? And, and so, right. I think Russia <laughs> recently came out with a plan, right? That, that was yeah, just in the news. Yeah, it wasn't net zero, but it was like a 30% reduction from its like 1990 baseline, which frankly doesn't mean anything because that was like the last year of the Soviet Union. Look, I think these net zero targets matter. I think it's really important. But I do think that part of what a Biden administration will or could do is bring some rationality to the targets, right? Because, for instance, Japan has no idea how they're going to get to its targets and actually hasn't even really created any real documentation as to how they're going to do it. They've already said that they're not going to bring back nuclear, which seems ridiculous to me. Like, I don't see how Japan, a tiny island, can actually make it work. It, it's theoretically possible to do it with offshore wind, but I think even that's going to be almost impossible. South Korea, like, you know, is still building nuclear reactors. I think it's quite likely that South Korea can actually hit its decarbonization goals, given the, you know, work that it's doing already, right? And so I think part of this is actually figuring out where American expertise is needed um, to help some of these folks with uh, some of the technical pieces of this. Because, look, I mean, for all of the confidence that I have that we're going to be able to get there, um, the level of complexity that we're asking people to take on to be able to create a modern electricity and energy system is actually quite high. And my sense is, is that most of these countries haven't really gotten through all of the layers of complexity. 
Yeah, and while the International Renewable Energy Association, IRENA, says, look, from 2013 to 2018, um, globally, we invested almost $2 trillion in renewables. Over That's over five years. It should be like a trillion a year. And in fact, if you do tr- $2 trillion a year, you can create 5.5 million new jobs. So there's this lack of investment. And remember, IEA, we talked about this before, has said there's not enough investment in all those technologies that will help us integrate renewables. So those are big challenges. I agree with Jigger. And I think that having Biden and all the US diplomacy at the table to really put pressure on and to come up with solutions together, I think you'll find that you're going to be isolating some folks that have been, you know, trumpeted by the current administration, I would say, and and forcing them into into action, too. The one other thing that I'd say on this, Stephen, is that um, there is a little bit of whipsawing going on. Remember that when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she went around the world forcing and convincing everyone to build LNG import terminals. And a lot of these folks did do that at our insistence, right? And we are still exporting LNG. And then there's lots of other places that are frankly more cost effective for exporting LNG um, that are active there, right? So there will have to be some sort of accommodation for these LNG infrastructure investments that the U.S. government asked people to do. Um, And now we're asking people to do (laughs) zero carbon things like renewable energy. Um, But I think there's going to have to be some sort of accommodation for the LNG uh, that we ask people to do as well. That, that brings me to another trade-related question. So Japan is the third largest economy in the world. It has been under intense criticism for financing coal power plants and until recently um, a, ha- had a major pipeline of new coal plants that were going to be built or were under construction. The prime minister says they're going to rethink that. Um, and as Japan starts to turn away from coal, what does that mean for a country like Australia? You know, Australia is the world's biggest coal exporter. Japan is its number one customer. Uh, Kobad Bhavnagri, head of special projects at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, said on social media that uh, Australian coal is quickly being left with nowhere to go. Japan is Australia's biggest trading partner in coal, and they have just served us divorce papers. What are the trade implications there? Yeah, super interesting because the prime minister of Japan said uh, that clean energy and the energy transition is no longer a constraint on economic growth. (laughs) Maybe he read your book, Jigger. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, this will isolate Australia. What Australia has been able to do is in all of their climate goals, they've they've limited to within country use, but they are a huge exporter. So you know, they, they have a 700% greater impact on emissions than just what they use in their country. And I think uh, they are going to find themselves with fewer and fewer customers. And South Korea falls into that bucket too. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as both of those countries, Japan and South Korea, begin uh, choosing cleaner energy options. So two of our largest um, investors are Australian superannuation funds, so QIC and Oz Super. Um, I met with the ambassador uh, to the U.S. from Australia last year. And, you know, he was joking and he said, but not really joking. He's like, our number one export is actually infrastructure dollars. And so they're the world's largest sort of and most sophisticated infrastructure investors. And when you look at, you know, one of their most important projects as deemed by the Australian government is the Sun Cable project between uh, Darwin and um, and Singapore. Um, so my sense is, is that Australia would be just fine. They were trying to get a few more years out of their 
uh, coal exports. Remember, their largest uh, importer was China, um, and then China decided to use more of their homegrown coal, and then you know became Japan. So, like, I, I my sense is that. The Australians um, are very good at implementation of infrastructure, and they are also blessed with a tremendous amount of solar and wind power, and so they will reorient a lot of those folks into, you know, jobs of the future. Absolutely, and and um, states like New South Wales within Australia are taking big strides. So they certainly have the ability to do that, and the wherewithal. It's the, the issue is their uh, leadership. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> South Korea, let's go over there. South Korea will go potentially from failing to meet its weak targets under international negotiations to promising to decarbonize its entire economy. How big of a deal is this? And do we think it's going to happen? You know, coal is 40% of South Korea's electricity generation. It's still potentially going to build 7.2 gigawatts of coal plants, according to the Global Energy Monitor data. What is this transition going to look like? Well, I love that the Green New Deal is not considered a dirty phrase out there and that they've announced proudly that it's going to be a $37 billion initiative to deploy over a million electric vehicles and 200,000 hydrogen vehicles by 2025. Those are good steps. South Korea has done a lot on smart grid and a lot on kind of uh, innovation on the in the power sector. So I think they also have some of the technologies and ability to do that. The issue is really finding a pathway to decommission all those coal plants. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's important to note in South Korea is they have, you know, a very uh, tight industrial system. So, you know, part of the reason and how in how South Korea became a, you know, rich country is through the work that LG and Samsung and others have done. These companies are also, as you can suspect, one of the leading providers of battery storage for lithium-ion batteries. They're one of the leading companies on fuel cells uh, for um, and the hydrogen economy. And so, you know, they're also one of the largest sort of shipbuilding uh, countries of the world through, you know, Hyundai. So, like, I think part of Part of, I think, what we need to recognize is that this is not really about decarbonization. It's just the pathway by which they do more industrialization, right? Like South Korea has become a wealthy country because it's able to coordinate between its government and its companies really well. And when they set their mind to something, then they become one of the largest, most productive producers of those products in the world. And so um, this is what South Korea's doing here. They're saying, we're going to serve our own interests, right? I mean, the nuclear power plants that they're building in South Korea, they're also building in the UAE, for instance, right? And so so one of the things that they're doing here is saying, for instance, like Samsung has a partnership with Bloom to figure out how to power uh, ships with uh, fuel cell technology in the future, right? And so my sense is, is that like this is how industrial policy works, and the U.S. would learn a lot if it actually pursued industrial policy for the first time in 45 years. Well, we may actually have an administration that is capable of doing that. My favorite clip after the election, one of my favorite clips was of Cristiana Figueres, the uh, former executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, who was just like jumping up and down, yippeeing that was good. by the results. Uh, and the yippee was very clear 
she now ha- understands that there's a clear pathway for negotiations going forward into next year's climate talks. And, you know, adding to that excitement, we now have Austria, Chile, Hungary, Ireland, Singapore, South Africa, Spain, uh, the United States, South Korea, Japan, back at the table with more ambitious targets. So what does this all bring us in terms of the geopolitics of what's to come on climate in the next year? Well, this is the part I think we're still missing. And I think it's actually incumbent upon us to solve it. It's not going to be a Biden thing. Um, in 2009, you know, when the, the phrase drill, baby, drill was coined and, you know, burned into our, our brains, you know, the Obama administration took it very seriously, right? And Obama, even as recently as last year, was quite proud of his record of, you know, helping to bring the oil industry up in this country through fracking. I think that um, when that occurred, we had Wall Street Journal articles, CNBC articles, all sorts of stuff saying that this was going to be a global game changer, right? This was going to make us a superpower next to Russia, and we were going to like beat back Russian influence on Europe, etc. Um, what we're talking about here is 10 times bigger, right? It's actually way bigger than fracking ever was, right? Because what we're talking about here is global influence through electric vehicle technology, global influence through agriculture technology. Remember, the green uh, revolution used to be referred to around fertilizer. And uh, um, and now we're actually figuring out next generation decarbonized pathways to being able to do that through regenerative ag and lots of other things, right? You were even talking about decarbonizing ships, decarbonizing airplanes, decarbonizing lots of infrastructure. And the U.S. is in the lead in almost every one of these areas on a technology basis. We're not in the lead in terms of deployment, but we are from a technology standpoint. So I do think that the question really is whether the new administration um, really understands the power of that. I know that American entrepreneurs understand the power of it, but it's never been clear to me that the U.S. State Department, Department of Commerce, or other organs of the U.S. government see us as anything more than just plain old exporters. Well, the pieces are coming together as we look toward the next 2021 meeting, and the U.S. will finally have a delegation there once again. Um, This brings us back into the question about leadership of the State Department. What is the State Department's role as the U.S. reengages with the world, Catherine? And what do you think a Biden State Department would do on this front? Yeah, the State Department has taken a big hit under President Trump. A lot of career folks have left. Uh, it's really hit on our diplomatic core. So I think they'll have to do a lot of hiring and finding new people, which is also a good thing because you can find some really new fresh voices that could bring a lot to the conversations. I think it's really important that we have a good team and that we have a we have an experienced team who understands how these negotiations go and um, we did that. And Biden knows how to do that because he was he was partly in the lead when they did that before um, under Paris. So I think that it's something that he's going to be really good at and he's going to know where to find the right people to do it. All right. I think that wraps it up. There are so many priorities under the Biden administration that we didn't get to that I want to talk about in future episodes. So This is just one of many conversations about how this will unfold. And the good thing is, I don't think we're going to get sick of this because we're actually talking about positive uh, things that will have a real impact. So let's go to free electrons to round out the show. Jigger, what's your free electron? 
So I wanted to highlight the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve basically came out a couple days ago and said that climate change is, is one of the largest systemic risks uh, for our finance sector. Um, I think they've been remarkably slow to this. Uh, you know, our friend. You mean the Federal Reserve that owns tens of billions of dollars of fossil fuel company debt under the COVID bailout? <laughs> I am I am not at all concerned about that, but that's an argument for another day. I think, um, but I mean, I think that the leadership that Mark Carney showed at uh, the Bank of England was really impressive, and it's good to see the Federal Reserve coming around here. I think with this announcement, it creates a whole body of work that is going to get started around, you know, really collecting information around how climate change impacts are going to affect, you know, loan policies, mortgage policies, insurance policies, and all sorts of systemic risks for our financial institutions. Catherine, Free Electron. Yeah, so last, in 2019, when I asked the World Economic Forum if I could just take a break, I'm not going to run any more councils, I'm not going to do anything for a while, they instead sucked me into a Scientific American work stream on identifying the top 10 emerging technologies of 2020. And they just were released uh, this week, and it's beyond energy, of course. It's medical technology, it's computing, it's all kinds of interesting things. There's a sun-powered chemistry for turning carbon dioxide into materials piece. Um, The one that I co-authored was on electric aviation, which I'm really interested in. And then I also, Jigger, you will like this because thanks to a lot of what you sent me, I was able to advocate very heavily to make sure that green hydrogen was also included on the list. I didn't write it, but it is on the list. So uh, look at that, you all. (laughs) It's Scientific (laughs) American's Top 10 Emerging Technologies of 2020. Awesome. We'll read it. Why didn't you pick vertical axis wind turbines on lamp posts? Let's just say there was a lot of brainstorming. Wait, did 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 solar frickin' roadways make the list? They did not. <laughs> By the way, that is a video that's been going around vertical axis wind turbines on lamp posts. Oh my goodness. It's it's become viral on social media. For those who may not know, I'm being facetious. If you see that video, run away. Like this <laughs> shit doesn't work. Oh my. <laughs> anyway, that's cool. I'm gonna read that article, Catherine. That's great. Okay, so last night I was um, doing research for the show, doing some reading up, and I ended up falling down a hole. I obviously, like many of you, saw the news that um, former Jeopardy host Alex Trebek died. Jeopardy was a, a, a huge presence in my life growing up, um, I think for a lot of people. And so I was wondering, is there an energy tie to Alex Trebek? And I just started searching around. It turns out there is a direct energy tie. Uh, Alex Trebek was a key character in this ride at Disney World called the Universe of Energy. And it featured Ellen, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, and Bill Nye the Science Guy and the whole premise of the ride was that Ellen was very confused about where energy comes from and she has this dream where she goes on Jeopardy and Alex Trebek has all these categories that he lays out about solar, wind, geothermal, hydropower, fossil fuels, I think hydrogen. I can't remember all the categories. I might be adding a few in there. But main sources of energy and she gets them all wrong and then she has to go on this ride with Bill Nye the science guy to figure out where energy comes from. The ride was actually created decades ago, and it was sponsored by ExxonMobil. They got a lot of pushback, and they had to revise the ride to make it more about clean energy. But still, it's this kind of bizarre 
world in which they go back and see where fossil fuels come from in the dinosaur age. And it's very pro-fossil fuels. And even Bill Nye, the science guy who talks a lot about climate change, is talking about how wind and solar are limited and how the world will rely on fossil fuels. Um, Anyway, I watched the entire ride last night. I I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about the old ride and the new ride. But Alex Trebek plays a very prominent role in that. And it's since been discontinued. But I will just assure everyone that he does have a really firm legacy in the energy world with the universe of energy at Walt Disney World. And rest in peace, Alex Trebek. That is what I did right before I went to bed last night. (laughs) (laughs) I only wish you had done that in the form of a question. Yeah, exactly. What is a waste of time? (laughs) Or or taking some some shrooms (laughs) while you were doing it. Yes, well, you don't know what I was eating during that time. (laughs) Uh, The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my lovely co-hosts. I am the executive producer. Thanks a lot for listening. If you want to show your support, go give us a rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts. Send out a word to your friends, family, or colleagues. And, of course, you can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. This is The Energy Gang. Weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again.